I was, uh, I was reminded recently of uh, what I will call one of my not-so-finer moments. Do you have those in your life? Moments that you just go, man, what was I thinking? Well, I was living with two roommates at the time. I was out of college. I was in seminary, and um, I had the larger room in the apartment, so I uh, had the most to pay for rent. So every month, I would write the rent check, and then the other two guys would pay me back. So one month I came to one of the guys, I had just written the rent check and I said, Hey, do you have yours? He goes, no, I don't have it. I go, I'm sorry. Oh, what do you mean you don't have it? I don't have it. I work at a church, dude. I don't have it. And, uh, and he goes, well, I don't have it. And so the next day he showed up and he had a check from his parents to me for his rent. And I was like, well, I'm glad to have the money, but you're like 26 and you get a full-time job and I don't know where your money's going. And I'm worried about, well, where's the next month's rent going to come from? Well, literally, it must have been two, maybe three days. He comes home with a Best Buy bag. What'd you go to Best Buy for? He goes, oh, I bought this new GPS for my car. Like, oh, whoa, 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 hold on. So three days ago, you couldn't pay your rent, and now you're buying like a $350 GPS for your car? All of this I'm like saying in my head. And if you're younger, you don't understand. Like, we didn't always have these lovely GPS devices called phones. We had to buy them separately. And so he had bought his. And so I'm just horribly frustrated. So I pull my phone out, and I'm texting the third roommate. I can't believe what this dude just pulled. He couldn't pay his rent, and now he's writing me. You know, he's, now he's getting a GPS for his car, and I'm just pounding with my thumbs. And I hit send, and in the other room, I hear a ding. I didn't text the third guy. I texted the GPS guy. And he walked in and he goes, um, what's this? It was a really awkward evening, uh, just to say the least. Um, and that story for me is a great reminder that I go back to again and again, because it's a reminder for me that I need a lot of grace. We all have moments where we realize, man, I need a lot of grace. Not I used to need grace, but I need a lot of grace today. And so this morning, grace is the heart of the message that I have to share with you. In fact, the central idea of this first week in this series is that grace is the source of our hope. Grace is the source of our hope. If you got a bulletin when you walked in, there's a handout in there. It says, Hope Dealers Week 1, the source of our hope. And where it says big idea, I'd encourage you to write down those words that grace is the source of our hope. Today, our hope is not in electing the right or the preferred candidate in November. Our hope is not in uh, a change that we can do in our own lives. No, our hope is grounded and rooted in God's grace. And I don't presume that all of you know what that word means. Often in church, we throw words around and just assume that everybody knows what we mean. Um, and so for me, the definition of grace that I'm operating from is this, that grace is God's free gift of the opposite of what we deserve. Grace is God's free gift of the opposite of what we deserve. So if you think about it, our actions deserve death. In the scriptures, it says, for the wages of sin is death. But instead of giving us death, God gives us life. Instead of receiving the wrath of God, we receive, through Jesus Christ, the love of God. Instead of being punished for our sins, God gives us his forgiveness. 
instead of being estranged and separated from God because of God's grace and because of Jesus, we can be reconciled to him. Grace is God's free gift of the opposite of what we deserve. And that's why it is the source of our hope. This morning, we begin a new series called Hope Dealers. And as someone asked me this morning, yes, it is a spoof on another kind of dealers. I believe that we are in a a world and a time and a place where we are in desperate need for hope. And in the book of Philippians, we see a people who are living in desperate and trying times and who yet were some of the most joy-filled and hopeful people that have ever lived. And so we're going to learn about what they knew that enabled them to live that way. So this morning, we're going to be in Philippians chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. If you're unfamiliar with the Bible, it's about 90% of the way through. It's between two books, the books of Ephesians and Colossians. It's not very long. You might skip over it. It's just two or three pages. But it contains some of our favorite verses of Scripture. Many of the verses that if you grew up in church, you grew up memorizing, they're in this book. You've probably heard these words quoted in other places. And before we jump into the text, I wanted to give you some background on this city of Philippi. The Philippians are the people who lived in the city of Philippi. Philippi is located in northern Greece. I should have brought a map today, but it's located in northern Greece. Philippi is the first city in Europe that hears about Jesus Christ and this gospel of grace. On a regular basis, the Roman army would go to war in this section of the empire, and the the emperor didn't want to bring all the soldiers back home because soldiers know how to do one thing, make war. If you have soldiers all hanging out in the capital city, what are they going to do? They're going to make war. If they have to invent it, they'll start a revolution. And so he liked to keep soldiers out on the edges of the empire where they didn't disturb things. And so he relocated after two separate wars, the army to Philippi, so much to the point that Philippi becomes known as a little Rome. It's modeled after Rome to a great deal. It's on the uh, international highway. It was a center for trade. And so Paul comes to this church in Acts chapter 16. If you're a Bible nerd, go back and read that story. Acts chapter 16. Paul comes to the city and there's a small gathering of Jesus followers outside of the city. There's a woman named Lydia who's leading them. She was an entrepreneur, a businesswoman. And Paul and his friend Silas begin working there. They uh, heal a woman And uh, her boss gets really mad because she told fortunes through this demon. And so things get hairy. They get thrown in jail. Paul is persecuted there. The Philippians are persecuted. This is not an easy place to live. This is not like Prescott, where it's just beautiful all the time, you know? And it's just easy to get around, and it's just relaxing, and it's just a place where you you retire to. Philippi was, for a Christian, it was a challenging place. It wasn't a popular thing to follow Jesus. It was a difficult environment. And yet, Philippians is probably one of the most hopeful and joy-filled books in the Bible. So this morning, we're going to take a chunk at a time through the first 11 verses, and we'll start with the first two verses in here. Here's how the book begins. Paul and Timothy servants of Christ Jesus to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and the deacons grace to you and peace from God our father and the Lord Jesus Christ this morning i want to make four observations for you about grace and hope and the first one is this that grace makes peace possible between us and god 
Now, if you've ever written somebody a letter before, you know that typically you begin the letter with kind of some pleasantries. Hey, how's it going? Hope you're doing well. Here's how things are going for me. Hope things are going well for you. And so in the same way, first century letters often begin with a greeting, uh, a a word of well-wishing. And this one begins that way. And Paul says, grace to you and peace through God, our father, Jesus Christ. See, Paul recognizes that grace is the beginning of this story. If you've ever received grace like me because you texted the wrong person, which, mind you, is not a mistake I've only made once. I've made it like four or five times. And it's a reminder for me that I need grace. And I hope you have a reminder in your life that's less painful that you need grace. Here at Cornerstone, we use this phrase that we're all broken people, that we're all a mess. Now, some of us believe that we're a hot mess, but we're still a mess nevertheless. We're all broken. We're all in need of grace. And yet there are some of us, I think, that believe that we're more like a Prius. That we use grace like a Prius uses gas. We're really efficient with it. We really don't need it very often. And and we get by pretty quickly. There are others of us that have recognized the truth. That this is the approach we need when it comes to grace. We need it by the truckload and we burn through it very inefficiently. And there's a lot of us that think that we're more like a Prius than this truck. And the reason that is, is a word called pride. That we think we don't need grace. Or if we do, we need it in small doses that we sip on it. And the truth is, pride not only prevents you from experiencing grace, but pride prevents you from experiencing peace. Because if you can't accept your need for grace and forgiveness, then you're never going to experience peace with other people or peace with God. See, I think it's important. See, you got to understand Paul is choosing his words very wisely here. His friend Timothy, the reason he mentions it is Timothy's probably writing this book down. Paul's speaking it. Timothy's writing it down. And so Paul could have said peace to you and grace through God, our father, Jesus Christ. No, he used those words in this order because it's grace that leads to peace. And if you try to work towards peace where someone is prideful, it is never going to happen because they don't understand their need to receive grace and they don't know how to give grace. See, we're never going to experience peace with God until we come to understand our need for his grace. There is no way to experience peace reconciliation with God apart from his grace. And in fact, it's actually the only thing that makes peace possible between us too. If you look around the room, there are people from this room who come from a very different background than you do, who come from a different family, from a different social or economic level, people of a different race. There are people in this room who are voting for someone different than you in November. And if we make our unity as a community in any of those things, we put peace at risk. See, our unity is found in the grace of Jesus Christ, that we have all tasted of that grace, and it is that grace that has reconciled us to God, and it is that grace that is our hope for a future. You see, I believe that God's grace is greater than all of our differences, I believe that you can put anything on that right side there under differences. And yet there is none of them that is greater than the grace of Jesus Christ. 
And that's why for me as a church, I want to call us to put our unity in the grace that we've experienced and not anything else. Yeah, there are things we're going to have to be on the same page with when it comes to theology to do church. Yeah, there are going to be some things that we're going to have to have common agreements about, about how we do church practically. But if our primary point of unity is anything but God's grace, that's not something strong enough to sustain us. Let me say it this way. We never graduate from grace. We never graduate from grace. Grace is a school that you're going to be in for the rest of your life. You're never going to walk across the stage, get a diploma, turn your tassel, and be done. You are always going to be in the school of grace. And when you think that you no longer need grace, then you've abandoned the way of Jesus and gone the way of the world, which says that through your works and your good actions, you can justify yourself before God. And one of the great struggles of followers of Jesus in the day of Paul and in our day is that we believe that we need grace to get to Jesus in the beginning. But after that, we graduate to higher class Christianity where we just work like hell to earn his love. And that's why so many Christians are exhausted. One of my favorite pastors resigned this morning. Not because of moral failure, not because he stole money. He just said, I'm broken and I'm tired and I need to rest. And those words describe so many of us when it comes to our life as a follower of Jesus. We're just exhausted. And it's because we've graduated from grace and moved to the place where we're trying to have peace with God and others out of something other than grace. Obviously, I I could do a whole sermon here, so I'm just going to stop and move on to my next point. But the first lesson here is it all starts with grace and that our hope for peace with God begins with grace. Let's dive deeper into the passage in verses three through five and then seven through eight. Paul says, I thank my God and all my remembrance of you always in every prayer of mine for you all making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. We're going to come back to verse six later. He continues, it is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. The second, so we'll do verse eight. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. The second observation is that grace enlists us in a common cause. There's a myth floating around our country that Christianity is a um, private thing. It's to be done in a secluded place of a church or your home. And while following Jesus is personal, something we do individually, it is never private. It always has public implications. And so when we receive grace, yes, it makes peace possible with God, but it also enlists us in a common cause. In verse 3, Paul talks about this partnership that they share together. I'm sorry, verse 5. And that word partnership is actually a Greek word. It's the Greek word koinonia. All throughout that culture, they would have used this word to describe a business arrangement where two people put their financial futures together in one to pursue a venture. Now, you've seen this word koinonia in the Bible before. You've seen it in one of the most famous passages in the New Testament, Acts chapter 2, beginning in verse 42, where it says, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, that's the word koinonia, 
to the breaking of bread and prayers. Now, when we hear the word fellowship, we tend to think about the holy Christian trinity of events, food, friends, and fun, you know? Hey, we're going to have a fellowship. We're going to have friends. We're going to have food. We're going to have fun. We think about it as a party. But this word was used all through, throughout that culture in that day. And it wasn't about a party. It was about a commitment that two people or more than two people were coming together in a common cause. And if one person succeeded, everyone succeeded. And if one person failed, everyone failed. It was this fierce loyalty that people would come together around to do business together. And so they were partners together. They were partakers together. And so Paul kind of borrows this metaphor and he says, we're not in the financial making profit business. No, we're in the grace business. We're in the gospel business and we're partakers of that grace. As a church, we're in the life transformation business. That's our P&L. That's what our goal is. We want to see people say yes to Jesus, get baptized, grow up in their faith, use their gifts, introduce people to Jesus, go around the world and make a difference. And we're united by this common experience and this common message and this common cause. That's why if you're going to follow Jesus, you can't do it by yourself. There's no place in this book for a private version of your faith that you can do on your own. It's like if you ever played video games before. It's a game that you can only play with someone else. My wife beats me all the time in Scrabble. Every single time, no matter how far ahead I am, she always beats me. Well, Scrabble is a game you have to play against someone. Even if it's the computer that knows all those words, you don't believe her words. You have to play that with someone else. And Christianity is the same way. You can't do it on your own. It goes even so far for Paul that the reason that he has food to eat is because of this partnership. You see, in American prisons, you're guaranteed three square meals a day. We pay for that as taxpayers. But in the Roman world, while you were in prison, it was incumbent upon you to have people bring you food. And so when Paul says, I give thanks for you and all my remembrance of you, I'm thanking God for you. The reason that is, is because the meal he just ate before he dictated this book to Timothy was provided by these people. His stomach is literally filled with food that was purchased because they raised money and sent Epaphroditus to Paul in prison to deliver his lunch. That's how much their partnership is affecting his life. Literally, he would be hungry and starving if it wasn't for them. And so when he starts off this letter and says, I thank my God and all my remembrance of you. Every single time I pray, I give thanks for you. That's because this common cause they're in with him is literally extending his life. That's the kind of partnership he has. And I think that's the kind of partnership we desperately want to have. We don't just want to show up and shake some hands and give some hugs and then go home and see those people in 167 hours next week. We want to have some people who are in the boat of life with us for good or bad, for better or worse, and who are going to walk with us no matter what comes our way. Who are there when we celebrate and who are there when we mourn. And grace is that thing that enlists us in the common cause together. In fact, grace is the glue that holds us together. Our church isn't held together by this experience. It's not held together by Jamie's music or my preaching. 
No, our church is held together by grace. You are held together by grace. Some of you are here today and you're going through the roughest season of your life. It's not your grit that's going to hold you together. It's not your creativity that's going to hold you together. It's God's grace that's going to hold you together. And sometimes you're going to experience it through scripture. And sometimes you're going to experience it through prayer. And sometimes you're going to experience it through another person. Grace enlists us in a common cause. Let's keep going. Verse 6. Paul says, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. My third observation is that what God starts, God finishes. We love starting things. In our culture, we love starting things. We're even more of an entrepreneurial culture today than we've ever been. We're always looking for the new thing, the grand opening. How many of you have ever gone to a grand closing of a store? But man, the line for Dutch Bros when they had their grand opening was 60 cars deep. I mean, we love when something starts. We're all there. We're all excited. But we're not there for the end. See, it's so much easier to be excited in the beginning than it is to be excited in the middle. And the thing is, God is as excited about his work that he starts in you as he is in the middle, as he is in finishing it. Paul says, the work that God began in you, Philippian believers, he is going to finish. In the book of Hebrews, the writer describes how God is the author and the finisher of our faith. He begins the story and he completes the story. In Romans 5, 8, Paul wrote another letter and he says, but God showed his own love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So this story of grace started with Jesus and Paul is saying here, God is going to finish that story. And some of you came today and that's the word you need to hear because you're struggling. You're barely hanging on. Maybe it's a crisis in your family. Maybe it's a crisis in your job. Maybe it's a crisis somewhere else that you can't deal with because you're so far away, but it's weighing heavy on your heart. Maybe it's a challenge in your, your faith that you're battling doubt. God is not done with you. God is not done in you. And this work of grace he's doing, you didn't start it. He did. It's not on your shoulders to finish it. It's on his. So some of you, I just felt this impression as I was writing this this week that I needed to share with you that you're carrying a burden you were never meant to carry. You think it's your job to finish this. You think it's your job to complete this. No, it's God's. Now, there are some things he calls you to do, and we'll talk about those in a second, but he is the one who's going to finish the work. So let him carry that burden. You don't need to carry that anymore. What God starts in us, he finishes, and that's why grace is the source of our hope. Because my hope is that I can't finish this. I have no idea what I'm going to even do on Tuesday. But God is the one, he's at work, he started grace in me, he's the one transforming me, and he's the one who's going to finish the job. And that gives me tremendous hope, especially on days where I don't know where things are going. What God starts, he finishes. Here's the last section, verses 9 through 11. Paul says, and it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, 
so that you may approve what is excellent. And so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. The fourth observation is that God's work in us gives us hope and it brings him glory. Paul writes this prayer after thanking them, thanking God for them. He writes this prayer. I think it's a prayer that could be prayed for all of us. It's it's a prayer that I've been praying for you this week, and it includes several elements that I want to walk with you through this morning. The first one he says is, I pray that you would be abounding in love. If you've ever filled up a cup and you weren't like watching what you were doing, or you started filling up a pitcher and you walked away and you came back and it was just overflowing, that's the idea of this word abounding that we would be overflowing with love, that our love could not be contained, that it would be reckless, that it would be incredible, that it would be generous, that Paul's praying that the people in Philippi would go, wow, those people know how to love. And I have a question for you. What if we were as famous for our love as we were for our opinions? I think followers of Jesus in the 21st century are far more famous for what we think about things and people than we are for how we love people. I think people know what we believe far more than they know that we love them. And Paul's praying for them and for us that we would be abounding in love. He continues, he says, I pray that you would be discerning with wisdom and knowledge. So many of us make decisions based on emotions. We go with our gut We just go with how we feel. The problem is how you feel is often affected by what you had for dinner last night. Not always the best barometer for decisions. And Paul says, I pray that you would use your heart and your head, wisdom and knowledge to discern between good and evil. I said it was a little Rome, Philippi. They had incredible challenges. If you think that people had creative ways to rebel and sin against God now, there was amazing ways back then. There were incredible temples to false gods and these people on a daily basis had to make decisions about what was right and wrong and good and evil. And Paul prays for them. And I think it's a prayer that we can pray for ourselves that we would have discernment with wisdom and knowledge. He says, I pray that you would be pure and blameless, that you would be authentic and holy. I was talking with some friends this week and I said, you know what? I think my generation has overreacted. And we've overreacted against the picture of legalism and hypocrisy that we saw in a previous generation. And so now we've just completely jettisoned holiness. We say things like, I just want to be real. I want to be authentic. And in being real and authentic, we've lost our desire to be holy and like Jesus. Legalism is wrong. You don't earn God's love by being perfect. It comes through grace. Hypocrisy is wrong, where you say one thing and do another, but not desiring holiness is a bad spot too. And so Paul is saying, I pray that you would be real and genuine, but you would also be holy. That you'd hold both of those together. Finally, he said, I pray that you would bear the fruit of righteousness. In another letter, Paul tells what that fruit is. He says the the fruit of the Spirit is love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness and faithfulness and self-control. There's even a song about it if you want to learn it. You can, just YouTube it. 
But when we bear this fruit, it doesn't go, wow, Scott, you're really fruitful. How awesome you are. No, that when we bear fruit, it points to God. Because the fruit that we bring isn't something we make. If you go next to a fruit tree and you just put your ear next to it, you don't hear it going, oh, there's a fruit, you know? The fruit just comes because the branch is connected to the tree and that's what a tree does. And so the tree doesn't get praise for making fruit. It's just what it does because that's how God created it. And when we bear fruit, it doesn't announce our awesomeness. It announces the awesomeness of God because he's the one who makes us loving and joyful. And the people around us know there's no way we'd be loving and joyful on our own. This has to be the work of God. This week I was reminded of a story. Um, it's starting to get a little bit cooler for me because I'm from Phoenix. This is like super cold. And uh, I'm thinking about Christmas, which is like about 100 days away if you're keeping track. And uh, a few years ago, my brother and I, well, it's a long time ago. We were little kids. Um, we played ball in the house. And we weren't allowed to play ball in the house. And uh, so we always played ball when my mom, my mom left. And one year there was a, a Rudolph uh, decoration in the house. And we were playing ball in the house and Rudolph got beheaded (laughs) and uh, it was pretty bad. And there was no way we were going to fix it, but my brother decided that he was going to try. So he found scotch tape and he just wrapped it around Rudolph's head. And it was one of those things where it's so obvious. You walk up and go, what happened here? My mom was gracious. I don't remember getting spanked for that mistake. Um, But I was thinking about that this week when it comes to grace that so many of us, we've made mistakes in our lives and our response to our mistakes is kind of like my brother with Rudolph. We try to piece it back, back together on our own. We try to make ourselves worthy or deserving of God's love. If you've ever seen a mosaic piece of art, it's a bunch of small, tiny pieces that were broken that on their own would look like nothing beautiful. But in the hand of an artist, that brokenness comes together and it becomes a work of art. See, that's what God does in us. He takes the broken pieces of our lives. He takes our mess and he makes it into a masterpiece. That's the work that grace does. And that's why if we're going to be people who deal and share hope, our hope has to be rooted in God's grace. It can't be rooted in our goodness or our creativity or our ingenuity or our resources. It can't be rooted in our ability to grit and will ourselves to it. It has to be rooted in God's grace. So here's some next steps I want us to engage in this week on the back of your handout. The first one is I want you to celebrate God's grace. I want you to celebrate God's grace. Some of us have never stopped and given thanks for all that God has done in our lives. When you walked in, in your bulletin, there were two little index cards. If you pull them out, blue and red. They're not pills. This isn't the matrix, but it's blue and red. And this week, I want you to engage in an activity. With your blue index card corresponding to the blue type, I want you to write down what is one place you've experienced God's grace. What's one place where tangibly you know that God's grace is real because you've experienced it? Maybe it's something that's happened over the last 28 days that we've been praying and got answered a prayer. But what's one place where you've experienced God's grace? And I want you to write it down on this card. On the red card, I want you to answer this question. What is one prayer you're still praying? 
Maybe you started praying it over the last 28 days and you're still praying it. Maybe you've been praying it for 28 years and you're still being faithful in that. When you walk out today in the center of the lobby, there's a giant cross and it's got blue on one side and red on the other. And I'd love as an act of our celebration for that to be covered by the end of today with places where you've experienced God's grace and places where you're still praying prayers that are future places where you'll discover his grace. Because I think we need to celebrate the way that we've experienced grace in the same way Paul did. The second step you could take is commit to partnership here. You know, there's some of you, I know that you've been coming for a period of time and you've been coming to worship and it's been great, but you haven't taken the next step. You haven't discovered that sense of koinonia here. And I'd encourage you, you could do that in three different ways. You could connect in a group. On the bottom of your handout are these discussion questions. The word discussion involves multiple people, like Scrabble. And the reason these questions are here is because people in Cornerstone meet in groups, there's 30 of them, in fact, that meet and talk about this message and how they can apply it to their life. I got to visit one this week and they were great. They even offered me ice cream. I couldn't have any because I'm like, I was intolerant, but they were super generous. And they had a great time. I got a chance to be a part of it. You could connect in a group and spend the next 11 weeks diving into this book of Philippians. You could volunteer to serve because you have gifts and talents that will make us better and help us to be the church more that God created us to be. You could plug in and serve. You could also give consistently. On the back of your bulletin, you saw that we had a great Sunday last Sunday because of your generosity. But if you've discovered the grace of God here at Cornerstone, it's because of the generosity of someone else. Somebody else invested their resources so you could have a place to discover God's grace. And the way that you thank them for that is that you give yourself so that somebody else can have a place to discover grace. I think sometimes we get awkward talking about money in church but we believe that this grace changes lives and that's why we invest our resources here because we're partners in that cause. The third next step I'd encourage you to take this week is I'd encourage you to memorize Philippians 1.6. Each week in this series, we're going to memorize a verse. It's a little bit of an old school habit. I did it when I was young, but I've been reminded of it in the last couple years and how valuable it is. And so this verse, Philippians 1.6, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion in the day of the Lord. I want you to memorize that. Now, I know some of you don't even know your spouse's phone number. And with Google, a lot of us have stopped learning things. We just ask Google. But you won't always have Google. Writing God's word on your heart puts it there for when you need it. And when you get to a point when you feel like that you're ready to throw in the towel, that God doesn't finish what he starts. When your hope wavers, you have this verse memorized so that you can know that God's grace is the source of your hope and the work that he started in you, he's going to finish. So each week in this series, we're going to memorize a verse like that so that we can become people who hold on to hope and share that with people. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for what you're going to do in these 11 weeks. I thank you so much for my friends who came today who are struggling, who are looking for hope, and I pray that they see hope, not in my words, but in you and your character. God, I pray for some people who are in this room who've been trying to do life on their own, in their own strength, and they've come to the end of that. 
God, we believe your grace is our only hope. And so I pray that today would be the day they trust in your grace for the very first time. God, we live in a dark world where a lot of people are afraid. A lot of people are disturbed. A lot of people are confused. And God, you call us to be the light of the world. To be people of hope who share hope. And so today we meditate and reflect and remember and reconnect with your grace. It's the source of our hope. May it light up our path and our city this week. In your name we pray, amen. Thank you for listening to the audio from Cornerstone Church in Prescott, Arizona. For more information, visit us online at www.prescottcornerstone.com.